I was listening to a podcast a while back called Invisibilia. Has anybody heard of this podcast? So this podcast is, uh, it, the whole point of it is to explore the hidden forces that exist all around us, those hidden forces that influence a lot of what we do in our day-to-day lives. And this particular episode talked about categories. It was exploring how we as humans have this almost compulsive desire to lump things together that share similar attributes, traits, characteristics. And we do this all the time, right? At home, I have a dresser. In one drawer, I have underwear. You have a socks drawer. I have a drawer devoted to wigs and fake mustaches because everybody should have a costume drawer, right? We have sites like Amazon that lump similar things together to make it easier for us to shop. We buy phones and computers that mimic the way we think phones and computers should operate. Uh, We also have streaming services like Spotify and Pandora that lump similar sounding songs together so that we're more likely to listen. I actually avoid certain thrift stores precisely because they don't categorize their shirts. (laughs) I hate going into a thrift store, seeing a rack of shirts a mile long, knowing I'm going to have to fumble with the tags only to discover that all the shirts I like are extra large, and I wear a medium. You know what I'm saying? That's why I shop at Plato's Closet. Am I right? Plato's Closet? They just do it right. just makes sense. But what if we suddenly lost our ability to categorize things? What if, because of a major accident, our brains suddenly lost the ability to lump like items together? This was one of the questions that they explored in this Invisibilia podcast. So it turns out that people can, in fact, lose this ability and have lost this ability, and researchers have devoted a decent chunk of time exploring this phenomena. So here is what happens. Let's just say we have a bunch of subjects, and we put them in a room. And in that room is this. What is that? It's a chair. It's a chair. So let's just assume that all of us, this is, where we, this is the first time we've ever seen anything like this. We have no concept of what a chair is. We just see this. So what do we do? We ask basic questions, right? Like, hmm, is this edible? You know, is this object something that's going to harm me? Is this a bomb? Is this a tiny house? Is this a vinyl of Tom Jones? You know, we ask very basic rudimentary questions. And then hopefully, after these series of questions happen, we discover that this is in fact a chair that is good for me to sit on. So then let's take these subjects into the next room where they see this. What is that? It's a chair isn't it? It's another chair. And so this is where we depart. Those of us who are able to lump like items together can easily see that this is a chair and we will sit right on it. But for, but for folks who have lost this ability, they will look at this and have to immediately go back through the exact same questions that they had to go through the first time they ever saw that thing in the last slide. They have to ask questions like, is this edible? Is this object going to harm me? Is this a bomb? Is this a tiny house? Is this a vinyl of Tom Jones, right? These are the questions that you have to ask. And every single time that people encounter a different looking chair, 
this entire set of questions have to be asked again and again and again and again. <laughs> Tom Jones. <laughs> you see, our, I was so happy about that one. You see, our brains compile lists of characteristics so we don't have to ask all these questions every single time we see something new. Our brains compile these lists so we can operate without fearing every new thing we encounter. It's way more efficient, right? It's efficient. Thank you, brains. But can you imagine how mentally draining it would be to have to go through this entire set of questions before determining what every new object is? But there is a downside to having this ability to categorize things. Uh, the researchers that were interviewed on Invisibilia also talked about how once we place something or someone into a particular category, it is insanely difficult for our brains to ever allow that person or that thing to ever escape the particular category we have placed them in. Once they're in, they're in. It's tough for us to see things or people with new eyes, allowing them to flow freely across multiple categories. And we can see how this can potentially be problematic, yes? So let's do an exercise. I want to spend a few moments brainstorming what the ideal American is. So I'm not asking like what, your, like what the checklist is for your ideal honey or bay or boo. Uh, what I'm asking for is on a societal level, what do we think collectively makes up an ideal American? What kind of traits are in, uh, what, what kind of traits do they have? What kind of characteristics do they exhibit? So what I'd love for us to do is just shout out some things of what we think of when you hear the words "ideal American." Hard worker. Okay. What's that? Great. Brave. Okay. Okay. Loving. What else? Patriotic. Is the ideal American poor, affluent? What is the ideal American? Middle class. Is there a religion of this ideal American? Christian. Christian. What's the ideal when it comes to housing? Homeowner. That's interesting. Okay. Okay, what about um, sexuality? Straight. Is this person married? What's the ideal American? Married? married? Yeah, married? 2.5 kids? Picket fence? Yeah, right? Yeah, we're going now. SUV. SUV. Give me that Escalade. <laughs> Dog owners. Any, any cat owners? Does that fall outside of the ideal American? I'm, I'm going to go, it falls outside. I'm going to say it falls outside. Okay, great. This is fantastic. So now what I want us to do is I want us to think of traits that exist with people who fall outside of this category. Who would fall outside of this category? ideal American category. 
Muslims. I heard a bunch of other stuff happen too. What else? Huh? Non-English speakers. Uneducated. Okay. Mentally ill. Socialist? Yeah, okay, and, and as we add these, you realize that we can add, so, okay, so probably capitalist and the ideal American. It's great. Atheist. Homeless. Homeless, poor, working poor. Gay. Yeah, LGBT. Cute. Undocumented. Yep. Disabled. Okay. Those are right-handed. Ooh, yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you, fellow Southpaw, I see. I appreciate that. Right-handed people. Man, let's talk afterwards. Okay. So do you see what we just did there? Very quickly, we just demonstrated a way that we as a society categorize whole groups of people. It was pretty easy. But how in the world did we come up with this list? Why is it that I, I could go anywhere in the US, ask who the ideal American is, we will get the exact same list. And we will get the exact same list for folks who fall outside of that. Why is that? Where did this list of traits originally come from in the first place? And who is it that's telling us who is in and out? Is it, is it the media? Is it the politicians? Is it corporations? Is it advertising? But there's one more question that I think is really important that we should be asking, is how in the world, given what the research has taught us about how hard it is for us to break these categories apart that we have so deeply embedded, how in the world is it that we actually go about changing these categories? How can we redefine who is in and who is out? So to help us answer this question, let's look at a passage from the New Testament. Uh, and the passage that we're going to look at is Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Listen as I read. Jesus left that place and went into the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know that he had entered a house, but he couldn't hide. In fact, a woman whose young daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard about him right away. She came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, Syrophoenician by birth. She begged Jesus to throw the demon out of her daughter. He responded, the children have to be fed first. It isn't right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. But she answered, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Good answer, he said. Go on home. The demon has already left your daughter. When she returned to her house, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. So this story right here perfectly demonstrates something that I think we often forget about when we read the scriptures. And that is this. Jesus was a real person who existed in a real world that had a real culture. 
complete with a particular code of ethics, particular narratives, particular social norms, and particular rules, both spoken and unspoken, about people, money, and power. And in this instance, we see Jesus operating completely within the norms of what was expected in first century Palestine. Here we have Jesus looking to retreat after a lengthy dispute with the Pharisees, which is not too uncommon, right? Anytime Jesus gets done doing a lot of very intense public ministry or gets engaged in a pretty serious um, quibble <laughs> with the Pharisees, he goes, retreats, reflects, uh, and, and is trying to become refreshed so he can go out and do it all again. Which is why Jesus wasn't wanting anyone to speak about where it was that he was staying. This was reflection time. It wasn't ministry time, it was reflection time. Also, Jesus was in the region of Tyre, which is well outside of where most of his ministry actually took place. So, Jesus was in a space where he was trying to reflect, and he was well outside the bounds of where his people were. So this should be the perfect situation for reflecting, right? Wrong. Because why? Just like many other times in Jesus' ministry, he gets interrupted. This time it's by a Syrophoenician woman who falls at his feet and makes a request. Heal my daughter. And to us, this interaction may seem benign. We may even think that Jesus is being kind of a jerk uh, to this woman who is trying to honor him by falling at his feet and making this request of him. She needed something in a big way. But let's just take a step back for a second and talk about first century Jewish culture real quick. Jesus was operating in something called the honor culture. And what this means, in this kind of culture, a person's place in society is established and maintained by the kind of respect and worth they receive from their superiors, their peers, and their subordinates, those who are under them. So based on that particular person's social standing, there are certain rules of engagement that are commonly understood, these, these community-wide understandings of how to and how not to interact with others depending on your own place on this societal ladder. So we have Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi retreating in a home. So when a person walks in who isn't male, isn't Jewish, isn't a rabbi, invades the privacy of this rabbi, and makes a bold request, this breaks every single rule of engagement within their culture. Because of these rules of engagement, because of the common understanding of how social interactions are supposed to go, because of the type of categorizing that went on in the first century Jewish world, Jesus responded in a totally understandable way. Jesus was simply going along with the societal norms of his day. That was the category that he was operating in. But then something wild happens. This Gentile woman fires back at Jesus, which is pretty incredible, right? And, and this firing back at Jesus would have gotten everybody's attention. This Gentile woman was now engaging someone who is way higher than her on the societal ladder in a debate. And the debate is actually the form of interaction that can either increase, maintain, or decrease both people's honor in that society. 
So Jesus, with his comments, says to the woman that his ministry is to the Jews specifically, so he has nothing for her, at least not yet. He says it in a less than graceful way. Then the Gentile woman responds by saying, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then Jesus immediately concedes the debate. He takes a loss. He grants this Gentile woman, this Syrophoenician woman, the victory. And this concession actually brings Jesus' honor level down. Well, at the same time, this Syrophoenician woman just leveled up. Jesus, through this exchange, not only healed this woman's daughter, but he gave this woman status in a society that did not offer many ways for women to gain status. The writer of this gospel, Mark, by telling the story in this particular way, communicated something sneaky and subversive to his audience. Theologian Ched Myers says this about why this story is so important. Jesus shocked those who heard the story and undermined their sense of social order and propriety. In the process of his symbolic construction of the new social order of the kingdom, Mark's Jesus was subverting the status quo in order to create new possibilities for human community. Jesus was subverting the status quo in order to create new possibilities for the human community. Jesus was blowing up people's categories and understandings of how the world is organized, of how the world works. And after hearing this story, people could no longer maintain the categories that they once had. If they were to follow Jesus, this meant that they had to enter into a new way of thinking. They had to blow up their nice and neat categories in order to orient themselves to this upside-down kingdom that Jesus was building right in front of their eyes. A kingdom that was complete with a radically different understanding of politics, economics, and a social order. So let's just jump back into our exercise just for a second. We very quickly identified who is the ideal American and who falls outside of that, right? But what we also just did was identify some ideals and, dare I say, some goals that to varying degrees we all in this room are trying to achieve. This social narrative is strong, and it can get a hold of us in all sorts of ways. And in addition to that, we also just laid out for everyone who the ideal person is that's going to have the easiest time getting their needs met in this American system. Let's just think of some of the ideal American traits. We have affluent, we have middle class or upper class, we have hardworking, we have English speaking, and home ownership as some of the traits of this ideal American. And now let's look at the traits of those outside of the center. Muslims, non-English speaking, uneducated, mentally ill, socialist, atheist, homeless, poor, LGBTQ, undocumented, disabled, right-handed. <laughs> Think of the narratives that we have around these people. Would you say they're largely positive or negative? Negative. negative. There's some pretty nasty things that I'm sure all of us have heard about black folks, brown folks, the inner city, immigrants, Muslims, the working poor. 
And sometimes, if we're being really honest, we've probably taken part in those conversations, contributing to those negative narratives. These negative narratives actually affect everything. It affects how different people are going to be treated in places like hospitals. It's going to affect the way different people are treated at traffic stops. It's going to affect the way different people are treated at the border crossing or at customs. Why? Because we, as individuals, inevitably view the people that we interact with as being more or less worthy of our time, our love, and our resources based on this, our shared ideals as a society. So these narratives affect us as individuals, right? Interacting within a system that idealizes this, the American ideal. So inevitably, anybody that falls outside of this ideal spot, we are going to be treating differently than this. It's just the way it is. And it's going to take a lot of work for us to get through that. But if we're being honest, many of these same systems uh, that, that are all around us were actually created originally only to meet the needs of these people, of the ideal American. The founding of our country is an excellent example. We have the phrase, all men are created equal. But what did that phrase actually mean? We all know now that originally it did not include native people, black people, poor people, uneducated people, women. It didn't include any of those people. And so what happened? Social movements rose up and folks fought for equality within this system. These people rose up and fought, so some of these people outside of the ideal were allowed in. They were advocating for a system that worked for more people, not just this. These systems and these narratives are so deeply entrenched and intertwined with each other that it's really, really tough to undo it. And we as Christians, we are called to a different set of values, a different orientation. We are called to an orientation where these outsiders are actually insiders, where the last shall be first, where the stranger and the immigrant are welcome among us, where we share our resources so no one is in need, where we stand with those who are oppressed, fighting alongside them for a more just society. With the recent events in Charlottesville, we are reminded of the ugly, hateful, and unhelpful category that says that white folks are better than black and brown folks. After living in the historic northeast of Kansas City, Missouri, and seeing a dramatic increase over the last 10 years in the amount of military-grade equipment being used to fight crime, we are reminded of the ugly, hateful, an unhelpful category that says that the inner city and the people who live in it are dangerous. With the recent resurgence of trying to build more border wall to the south of us, we are reminded of the ugly, hateful, and unhelpful category that says that Mexicans are bringing crime to our streets and stealing American jobs. We as Christians are called to do the hard work of breaking apart these categories. We, as Christians, are called to redefine who is in and who is out. We, 
as Christians, are called to look at this chair and this chair and this chair with fresh eyes every single time. We as Christians are called to ask basic questions like, what is your name? Where are you from? <laughs> What's been difficult for you lately? What has brought you joy? Hey, you want to come by for dinner? You want to grab a drink? I'd love to hear your story. To close, I have um, a quick story about my own wrestling with having to shatter categories. I lived in an intentional Christian community in the historic Northeast called Cherith Brook, and on the streets we were known as the shower house. And what we did is um, four mornings a week we offered showers to folks who were sleeping on the streets. Uh, we offered breakfast, change of clothes, and on occasion we asked folks to move in with us. So over the course of five years of me living there, I still volunteer there now, uh, over the course of five years of living there, I had a couple dozen formerly homeless roommates. And it was absolutely incredible. And I really love that particular neighborhood and that particular community. One of the practices that we had in this community is we, would, we were committed to riding bikes everywhere. And so what we did is we would, twice a week, hook up a baby trailer onto the back of our bicycles, and we would bike across town to a grocery store uh, so we could pick up food that they were just going to throw away. And then what we would do is we would bike that back in our baby trailers, uh, and we would sort it, clean it, and serve it to our guests, and we would serve it to ourselves. That was the food that we all lived off of. And I noticed that one particular day while I was on my bike, there was a group of young black men just laughing, chatting, having a good time on the sidewalk. And I noticed that as I was riding my bike, something started to happen within me. As I got closer to that group of people, that group of young black men, I noticed that my heart started to beat faster and faster and faster the closer I got to this group of people, to the point that I was really panicking by the time that we were the closest. Of course, nothing happened. We said hi to each other as we whizzed past each other, and that was it. That was it. The, the interaction was done. But afterwards, I was reeling. I was reeling because in that moment, I realized for the first time in my life, I had some deeply embedded racism. I would never have called myself a racist. Never. But in that instance, I realized that I had some work to do. I realized that somewhere along my development, I received messages that I internalized. Messages that said that groups of young black men are to be feared. And as I reflected more, trying to figure out where in the world this would have come from, I was reminded of news story after news story about crimes being committed by who? Young black men. 
Then I thought more, and I remembered that, and this came from a place of uh, wanting me to be safe. My parents would often tell me whenever I would go downtown to avoid prospect. Never exit on prospect. And there I was living off of prospect, <laughs> a number of blocks east of there. But I realized that these messages really internalized and really solidified a really, really ugly, hateful, and unhelpful category. So I had a choice to make. Do I retreat because of my fear? I mean, that would be easier, right? It's always easier to be around your people. You don't have to think about it. It's just you're off. You're around those who are like you, have similar life experiences. It's easy. So that was one choice I could make. The other choice was I could choose to press into the fear and try to see people with a fresh set of eyes, free from any category that I would ever try to put them in. I, I chose to lean in to the fear. I leaned into the fear and did a lot of internal work to undo the deeply held subconscious beliefs that I had about this particular group of people. I, without knowing it, began the process of blowing up the categories that I had. And very quickly, I fell in love with the historic Northeast. I loved it. It was actually the neighborhood that I have felt safest in. I felt safe. Why was it? It's because I walked around and I biked around all the time, all over the neighborhood. Why? Because I got to bump into my new friends. I would go out onto the streets and I would see people like Sonny, Frank, who's here this morning, uh, Lydell, Kim, Stacy, Molly, Juanita, Oscar, Wayne, Matt, and Ivan. All the people that I would regularly see at the shower house. People who my entire life I was told to distance myself from. People who I got to know by asking basic questions. People who also got to know me. By allowing people to exist outside of a category means that we are going to experience pain, fear, and confusion. That's the nature of it. That's the science of it. That's the biology of it. But allowing people to exist outside of a category is exactly what drew me to Jesus. It is what makes Jesus so enticing. Because Jesus, he stepped out of a circle. He stepped out of a category of the people he was familiar with. And by doing so, he ended up welcoming the Syrophoenician woman. He ended up welcoming the tax collector. He ended up welcoming the sick, the blind, the lame, the possessed, the widow, the orphan. Jesus could have easily kept his social order intact. He could have very easily just hung out with his fellow rabbis, engaging in lofty discussions about theology. But instead, Jesus blew up all the categories. And Jesus is inviting us to do the same in our own day and age. Jesus is inviting us to take a step towards people who aren't like you, or you, or you, or me. By asking basic questions, by looking at everyone and everything with new eyes, by refusing to lump people into this category of other, 
we will discover that the other, the them, has really been us all along. And what do you know? Suddenly a new community is created. A community full of these people who fall outside of the ideal of the American system. Because we recognize our system as Christians isn't the American system. It's the kingdom of God, which is actually an upside-down system. What we end up creating is a community full of people who in this other system are told they don't belong. People who in this other system are told they are not worthy, that they have nothing to offer. And it is in this kind of community, the kingdom of God kind of community, it's this kind of community that makes them us. And it is at that moment that we get to glimpse the kingdom of God in all its beauty and in all its messiness here and now. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we see all around us the dangers of categorizing. We've seen it recently in Charlottesville. We've seen it in a number of acts of violence that happen all across the country. God, we see the hate. We see the fear that's present in the hate. And we see the othering that goes on all around us. God, help us refuse to view anyone as an other. God, help us to see the image of you in every single person that we meet, be they friend or enemy. And God, we thank you for the example of Jesus, who on the cross chose to forgive those who hung him up there in the first place, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God, may we go from this space being that kind of a people. Amen.